0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We are once again locked and loaded for another episode of The Conspiracy Farm. It's me, Jeffrey Wilson, coming to you live and direct from here. I'm sitting in St. Louis, Missouri, always with my co-host, Riding Shotgun, UFC, Hall of Famer, Pat Milich. How are we doing this afternoon, champion? I'm
1: doing great. I'm doing great, Jeffrey, and I will say you've outdone yourself
0: well you know this guy i i've, I've told you off air we've, we've had him on the show before I'm, I'm beyond a huge fan uh even though i did introduce him in a, incorrectly last returning. what's that we've had our best guests returning absolutely well they just can't get enough and honestly we can't just get enough of them because their their information is so very interesting this guy here he is an oxford professor an author of a great many a great many books including some of my favorites The Giza Death Star, Financial Vipers of Venice, The Babylon Banksters, Nazi International, and the list goes on. You can, obviously, at the end of this interview, you can, uh, he will drop his social media. You can find out where he's at. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Joseph Farrell is with us today. How are you today, sir?
2: Pretty good. Thanks for having me back. I'm not actually an Oxford professor. I just got my PhD there.
0: (laughs) Are you telling me I messed it up again? Two times? (laughs) Come on. Yeah, that is true. PhD... (laughs) A PhD from Oxford, <laughs> boy, oh boy! It always has to be something, doesn't? It? But again, I am a huge fan, sir. I mean, you, you know, again, like I said last time, if I had a dollar for every every hour I've I've listened to your videos and it just like went into your research, it, it is so very fascinating. And the last time we talked, it's I kind of messed up the order of everything. The last time we talked, we kind of started with pre um, pre World War II. Europe and uh, the, the role the Nazis played and the Americans played in the Nazi war machine, et cetera, et cetera Sir what we need right now and have you seen in the world? We are at each other's throats divide and conquer is in huge effect on my f- Facebook timeline, and it's just crazy and throughout the world. I want a little bit of perspective I want to rewind the clock quite a bit if you don't mind and with a lot of your information, I think you can kind of help us do that and realize so much of this is By design, and we oftentimes get caught up in a lot of the minutia of this, um, as it relates to one of your books, um, you know, the Babylon Banksters, High Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion, and the Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion, and also going to kind of coincide that with uh, the the Cosmic War. I'm going to give you, I'm going to toss you a softball here and almost let you go on a rant here for about 40 minutes the way I set this up. Tell us about the Cosmic War, if you will and how that led to what you describe as a comic or cosmic Versailles Treaty.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I took I took the thesis of, of Dr. Tom Van Flandern, who used to be the uh, US Naval Observatory astronomer uh, prior to his death. Uh, he died just very recently. He wrote a book um, called New Plan, or, pardon me, Dark Matter, New Planets, Missing Comets, or something like that. I could never remember the title of that book. But in it, he advanced the hypothesis that was very popular back in the early 19th century when astronomers discovered the first asteroids. And they, they were actually looking for a planet where the asteroid belt was because there was a, an astronomical law that was called the Titius-Boda law, named after two German astronomers who formulated this law. And basically the law predicted the harmonics of the orbits of the planets from the sun. And according to the law, it predicted all the planets, except there should have been a planet in the asteroid belt. And so not finding it, and then later finding small asteroids uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. Astronomers formulated the hypothesis that the planet that was there had exploded, it had blown up. Um, And Dr. Van Flandern revived that hypothesis uh, in a number of ways, looking at the composition of, of various asteroids and so on. And he also looked at the orbits of comets and then ran a computer program basing on these orbits and and ran them backwards and he discovered a very interesting phenomenon that many of the comets that we know that come into the solar system appear to have been the debris the ejecta from that exploded planet because they all originated in the asteroid belt the orbits of these comets originated there and he ran the the program and discovered that the planet had to have exploded at one of two possible dates in the ancient past. One date was 65 million years ago, which corresponds rather well with, with the KT uh, geological boundary layer and the extinction of the dinosaurs. And the other date was approximately 3.2 million years ago. And that date interested me because if you look at ancient lore, if you look at the Mesopotamian texts, if you look at Greek mythology, of course, they have the Gigantomachy, the, the battle with the giants, which if you, if you do the astrological names, the, the battle against Kronos, well, Kronos is actually the Greek name for Saturn, the planet Saturn. So there was a great deal of lore about this ancient cosmic war of the gods and from Mesopotamia, from Greece, from Rome. Uh, pretty much every civilization has some version of this. We we tend to know it in the West from the biblical version of you know the battle between Michael the archangel and, and Lucifer. Mm. Okay. But there's this there's this cosmic war tradition, and I got looking at the texts and discovered that that this was basically a kind of. Uh, If you will, a civil war in the pantheon of the gods, regardless of of which tradition you looked at—Mesopotamian, Greek, Roman, what have you—so it looked to me kind of like, if I can, if I can draw the analogy, it it looked to me kind of like a, an interplanetary version of World War One, if you you want (laughs) to think of it that way. Because of course, World War One, you had the ruling houses of Europe. Basically, all battling each other, and they're all related. You know, Kaiser Wilhelm II was the great grandson of Queen Victoria, cousin to Tsar Nicholas II. I, I want to
0: move. I want to get to that on how this all this kind of moves forward through history. But no, you're absolutely right.
2: Yeah, the, you know, it's it's an analogy to World War I. But what really kind of struck me, you, you mentioned the idea of, of what I call the the Versailles template for this cosmic war. Uh, because when you look at this ancient war, the text describes something very interesting. If you kind of assemble them all together and, and look at them whole, the first thing that they described, particularly the Mesopotamian epics, is that after this big cosmic war, they took an inventory of the defeated side's inventory or arsenal. Uh, this is found in an in an epic called the Epic of Ninurta, and I I put I put the whole thing, this whole Babylonian epic, in my book, The Cosmic War. And I, re- I the reason I did that is very simple because if you read this thing, it's about as exciting as reading the index to the Sears catalog. It's <laughs> it's it's not an epic, folks. It's just an inventory. But it's it's a rather unique one because again, if you if you draw the World War One analogy, what do the Allied and associated powers do at the end of World War One? Well, they take an inventory of the German war machine, and they cart off some of it. They they basically steal the technology and decide to to use some of it in other applications, and they forbid the Germans from. Producing certain types of armaments under the stipulations of the Treaty of Versailles.
0: Just to stop you real fast, I mean, and this is sure. something I found very fascinating. World War One, and I believe you said World War One, um, the, the Germans had a certain level of technology and were downing certain amount of French planes using a certain technology, wireless technology or something. Was that World War One that they were first kind
2: of? That was after World War One in the nineteen twenties. I talked about that in a, in a conference uh, talk I gave in Bastrop, Texas at the Secret Space Program Conference in, in 19, uh, pardon me, t- 2015. Um, they did have something going on in Germany very clearly, uh, and it would have been interesting for the Germans to investigate that kind of technology because they were not prohibited under the Treaty of Versailles terms from investigating those types of technologies. Uh, the treaty was very specific on what types of, of heavy weapons they could and could not produce. Uh, so I think there is a case to be argued that, that yeah, they, they began to experiment in some of these very exotic things almost as soon as the ink was dry on, on, on the treaty. But the other interesting thing that really kind of grabbed me about this comparison between this ancient cosmic war and World War One was that in... World War One's case at the Treaty of Versailles, you had a quarantine zone effectively put around Germany. In the west, there was a demilitarized zone that extended about 30 kilometers on the east bank of the Rhine that was supposed to be completely demilitarized. And then, of course, everything west of the Rhine River was completely de- supposed to be completely demilitar- demilitarized. So there was a quarantine zone around Germany on the west, And the French subsequently, uh, under Clamenceau, began to weave a system of alliances in Eastern Europe to put yet another kind of quarantine zone around Germany in the East and also to isolate uh, Soviet Russia from any inroads into continental Europe. So there was this quarantine zone around Germany. Well, if you go back and look at the ancient texts, you find in, in the Book of Enoch, for example, the Slavonic text, you find this idea that the the Earth is in a kind of a quarantine zone. And depending on which versions of this quarantine zone you read about, depending on the text that you read, but in Enoch, this boundary zone that humanity is not supposed to step across is at the orbit of the moon, So Hmm. there's all sorts of very, very interesting parallels. And and that quarantine zone really got me thinking, because if, if you recall all of our space probes, when we first began launching probes to the moon, and then of course to the other planets in the solar system, we would put these little placards on our probes. We come in peace for all mankind, things of this sort. And I began to wonder if those placards weren't simply uh were not simply a a an expression of you know peaceful intention, you know a, a sort of interesting gesture, but if they were not put on there because there were people in the national security establishment that suspected or had figured out from those ancient texts that there was some sort of perhaps cosmic versailles treaty right <laughs> It's addressed around. to somebody
0: right that that's a message to someone
2: right, exactly. So you know, that's 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 the cosmic war Versailles template in in a nutshell. That's the cliff notes version.
0: No, and I appreciate that because I know we don't. I mean, like I said, you've got done hours and you know many many of books and uh, you know written on this on this subject. So and so segue that and so that 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 quarantine, if you will, was for uh, as you spoke about in in your books and in your videos, <clears throat> was for a, a certain technology, correct? A certain wep- level of weaponry, or w- what was the quarantine for to keep them keep whomever from receiving
2: well i suspect that the quarantine zone if if you're looking at it from the cosmic war perspective that it was much like the the demilitarized zone around germany because what the allied powers were effectively trying to do was to push the the deployment areas of any potential german mobilization in the future back behind the rhine so that their jumping off point would be much farther back from from where it was at the beginning of world mm. war 1 but the other thing that's very interesting here is if you read that epic of nunerta it it is almost an exact parallel of what you find happening at the end of world war 1 because the the victorious side in that ancient <clears throat> interplanetary war basically takes an inventory of of the defeated sides arsenal parts off some of it, and then destroys other bits of it, which, again, the Allies did after World War One, And then there are some technologies that could not be destroyed, so they hid them. <laughs> so, And it's kind of interesting because, of course, at the end of World War One, the Germans uh, hid some of their, you know, super advanced designs for artillery pieces and so on and so forth. The Allies tried to get these things, and, of course, they never were successful.
0: Well, I guess that leads me to, I mean, so from that, I mean, do you you have a time frame, timeline of when this cosmic war took place in the, you know, Versailles template,
2: et cetera? That's an excellent question. And the way I approached the problem in the cosmic war was to paint in very, very broad strokes for a very simple reason. If If you look at the attempts of the alternative research community to make dates for the flood, for example, or for this uh, ancient ice age, or for, in my case, for this cosmic war, you're dealing with so many disparate data sets that a synthesis isn't really immediately possible. So I painted in very broad strokes and basically relied on two things one was Van Flandern's late date for the exploded planet, which would have been about, two point, or pardon me, about 3.2 million years ago. And then the other reason I relied on that date is that if you look at those ancient texts, if you look at the Sumerian Kings list or the Egyptian Kings list and so on and so forth, what you find is a chronology that takes you back if you take them at their word takes you back about a quarter of a million years, so you're still wildly, wildly yeah. outside of the ballpark of 3.2 million years ago, but it's much easier to reconcile that uh, with new information as it becomes available than it would be to to a date of 65 million years ago. And then there's the other problem that you have with with the dating of, of some people, of, of the ruins on Mars, Dr. Mark Carlotto, for example, wants to date some of those ruins to about a little more than a half a million years ago, which again would be in the ballpark for... Van Flanders' late date, so I, I paint in very broad strokes, but I kind of leave that chronology question open-ended because we simply don't have enough data.
0: Well, and quite frankly, as we, as you know, we talk about on this show, and you talk about, and I many researchers, you know, they kind of feed us this whole thing that we were just so simple-minded and built the pyramids, and now we're so sophisticated. Now, help me, seg- help me segue that that timeline of of cosmic war, hidden hidden technology, even whenever it was, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Graham Hancock. And um, and other people's uh, research, as far as it's very hard to pin down the time frame because the timeline right. has been so kind of uh, obfuscated and kind of lied about. Um, l- talk to me again if you can't help me segue the the notion of the hidden technology and the purpose of that, because if you go back again to um, certain research like Graham Hancock's, you're finding places like Göbekli Tepe, me- megalithic structures which way predate. You know where we're supposed to have begun and then that gets into the whole ice age event you had miles and miles of ice which could have ground down any existing civilization and then he gets into certain comet certain extinction level of level events which melted that ice raised the temperature lowered it again so at the end of the day, though, he's asserting very similar things that there was an ancient civilization, ancient knowledge, and only a few survived these cataclysmic events to tell the tale. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm assuming it has to still, that information still has to be attributed to some of that cosmic information you're talking about. Talk to me about that and how that emerged in somewhat modern day ancient, ancient um, the well, Sumerian, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, and just basically that priesthood and all of it that kept these these secrets of former lives, former t- technology, if you will. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, and this is conflating a lot, but in how that relates to the models that were then presented to the world through their physics, and how you relate physics with economics, if you will, because that model I think limited us in a huge way. And I, mm-hmm. I, what are your thoughts on that? Was that from keeping us recognizing our huge potential? What, what's the function of that? I know I was a lot there, I apologize.
2: <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I'll be able to answer all of that. I'll just give you my my summary of the model that I've been operating with. Um, my my hypothesis is that that ancient cosmic war was terribly destructive, uh, basically, both sides, Victor and Vanquished, were shattered. Their infrastructure was was basically in no condition to, to carry forward. So what they had to do was adopt a strategy of preservation of their knowledge by some means over time. So in my understanding of it, the the mythologies that they constructed were constructed in such a way that they would only... to reveal their true scientific content as mankind's science got back to the (laughs) plateau that it was at when that cosmic war occurred so my model has been that they had to jumpstart civilization rather quickly and preserve that knowledge and that's not really a a far-fetched hypothesis because If you look at ancient Egypt, for example, or ancient Sumer, for that matter, what has perplexed standard historiography is that these civilizations spring up almost overnight and almost whole cloth. Hmm. Uh, In the case of the Sumerians and the Egyptians, you have an advanced mathematics, you have astronomy. Yeah. You have domestication of of animals, you have agriculture, you have organized economies, and so on and so forth. You've got all of the institutions that we take for granted as as being part of civilization. But in the case of Egypt especially, they will tell you, if you look at their ancient texts, that they are actually a declined civilization. They're a legacy civilization of something that preceded them. Hmm. So in other words... If there's, if there's any dot connecting to be done, I think what you have to do is, is bear in mind a, a tremendously destructive war and what, what the plan would be as that destruction becomes manifest. Well, You're going to want to preserve your knowledge. You're going to create uh, priesthoods or, or secret societies or mystery religions, whatever you wish to call them, to try and preserve this knowledge and hand it down. And I think this is what happens. And interestingly enough, since you mentioned bankers, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did and 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 the connection to physics, because if you look at the megalithic structures around the world, uh, this was particularly the the hypothesis of, of people like Alexander Tome uh, and Oxford Engineering, uh, Don, and so people like that, they looked at these megalithic structures and basically said that that the standard academic narrative of units of measure in ancient times being based on human body parts or what have you was just utter nonsense. And that's true, because if you're going to try and jumpstart civilization again, well, what do you have to have? Well, you have to have commerce. And if you're going to have commerce, what do you have to have? Well, you have to have a system of weights and measures that are going to be easily deducible and applicable from region to region. So in other words, you have to have some system in place to have some common weights and measures in order to conduct commerce at anything more than a local level. And this is what you see them doing with some of these megalithic structures, because what they're doing is enshrining geodetic and astronomically based units of weights and measures. And those things, of course, are going to be true all over the surface of the planet. They're going to give you reliable uh, measures, reliable weights, and so on. This is the first activity that we see happening circa 35,000 BC or so. So, in other words, this activity, again, fits the overall model. Now, there is a connection, and this is kind of uh, related to your other question about (coughs) finance and and physics, to to basically state the point as, as simply as possible. Any financial system is based on some system of physics and energy. We have the petrodollar system right now. Well, it's based on essentially a closed system of physics with scarce, supposedly scarce, non-renewable, supposedly non-renewable resources. Now, I'm not a believer in the fossil fuel theory of of fossil fuels, as a matter of fact. I'm not in that camp. But nonetheless, the basic system itself is still a closed system of energy. It's still a closed system of finance. If you roll things back to ancient Sumer, what you find is almost the exact opposite of what we now have with our petrodollars, our monetized debt. Because in ancient Sumer, you had a system of finance that was based on money representing the surplus of the state warehouse. In other words, it was debt-free money. Uh, It was not bullion based, it was not something that was based on scarce non-renewable sources of, of energy or things like that. So you had an open system of finance because essentially you had a kind of open system of physics. And if you turn to the modern era, well what do you see the Bilderberg group talking about you know for the last 10 to 20 years? Well one of the big things that has been constantly a subject of discussion is fusion power. Because if that ever comes online, of course, the whole uh, economic system is is in serious trouble because it's based on a very closed system of energy, and therefore it's a closed system of finance. So hmm. you see a lot of things going on right now that indicate that they're aware that a big paradigm shift is about to occur. I think cryptocurrencies yeah. are part of this. Are part of this phenomenon and don't get me wrong I'm not a big fan of cryptocurrencies for different reasons but I do think that they might represent an attempt to bring out a financial system that is going to be an open financial system and not reflective of of scarce non-renewable energy resources
0: yeah, I think as we move into the technocracy, I think that things like cryptocurrency and moving away from fiat currency is going to be more and more, uh, you know, pervasive and ubiquitous, you know, in, in anonymous transactions are just going to be completely gone by the wayside. Uh, going back to um, you know, this hidden knowledge, et cetera, and how it kind of was coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, man, if we could all go back to the, the libraries of Alexander prior to the burning, that would be so awesome as far as. You know, having have a, a real insight of what's going on and what's you know our history, etc. And so, um, how do I how do I phrase this? So, the the, the this is kind of moving forward a little bit because I mean obviously we're jumping kind of a hundred years here, but the Venetians wound up sacking the Byzant uh, the the Byzantine Empire and wound up getting okay. access to ancient cartography if you will, which, you know, really kind of defies what was, you know, modern modern cartography at the the time, you know, uh, maps of Antarctica without the ice, if you (laughs) will. Um, Move us forward a little bit into, um, gosh, I I know I'm hitting you with so much here. The the Medicis and their unraveling of the, I I forget what it's called, the uh, Hermetic. Hermetic. Yeah, the translations of the Hermetica and how that began to uh, take this, this occult-ish hidden technology, hidden understanding to the next kind of somewhat modern level in the Renaissance, if you will.
2: Well, well, let's let's, those are two different issues. Uh, the Venetians sacking Constantinople and then the De Medici in, in Florence with the Hermetica. So let's deal with, with Venice and cartography first. Okay. Because I think, and I, I lay out this case at some length in, in the financial vipers of Venice, um, in Venice's case, I, I happen to think that the Fourth Crusade was intentionally uh, intended by the Venetians from the outset to go to Constantinople. And I think the reason they did so was that they were trying to get at, gain access to the imperial archives there, some of which I firmly believe included manuscripts that were either... Saved from the Library of Alexandria, or were copies of manuscripts that were in the library prior to its burning, and so on. That's because
0: Byzantium, because that area was under Byzantium's auspices at that time, right? Their empire was huge. Okay,
2: Egypt, Egypt was part of the Byzantine Empire up until the seventh century. Uh, When at first it was uh, taken by the Persians and then subsequently recaptured by the East Roman Empire and then subsequently subsequently captured by the Muslims But for a prolonged period of time it was it was part of the Eastern Roman Empire the Byzantine Empire So uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the Imperial Archives would have had some cartographical information because we see, after the Fourth Crusade, we see the emergence in medieval Europe of, of maps, very accurate maps, as a matter of fact, of Europe that are called the medieval portalons, all right? And I strongly suspect, given Venice's probable involvement of an expedition to the New World with the Sinclairs in, in the 14th century and so on, I strongly suspect that Venice gained access to the New World, and particularly to the bullion supplies. This is a huge part of the story. Venice was essentially the bullion capital of Europe at the time, and they gained access to, to this hidden bullion supply, which allowed them to manipulate the bullion markets in Europe, and they did so very cunningly, very... Uh, deceitfully they they basically ruined Florence for a period of time by their ability to manipulate the bullion prices the gold to silver ratios.
0: can I ask a quick question sure does that have anything I know the Venetians were different than Christopher Columbus and Genoa and those guys who supposedly maybe came to the New World prior to his 1492 and that's he he, he apparently had gotten relations with Indians and got gold from them is that completely separate the the gold uh, the bullion aspect is that completely separate
2: i don't know what you mean by separate but but i mean as far as
0: you know the accumulation I mean. of gold was that was that was the was the venetians accumulation of gold due in any way to some of those early trips to the new world or was that their own accumulation no,
2: I, I i think the venetians you have to remember that venice is in league with the templars uh the templars are are venice's allies and in fact most people credit venice with inventing double entry accounting I really think that this was probably done by the Templars and the Venetians simply inherited that uh, that bit of technology and technique from the Templars when the Templars were suppressed. Many of them went to Venice, became members of the Council of Ten, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that there's a connection there with the New World bullion via the Templars. And then, of course, you see the Venetians... The Zeno uh, manuscript talking about the Venetians actually going to the New World with with the Sinclairs, (laughs) interestingly enough. Uh, So, yeah, that connection's there. And, And what I'm trying to stress here by mentioning Venice and this hidden cartographical tradition is that this meant that Venice effectively was opening the financial system in Europe, but keeping it as a monopoly, as a state secret. So in other words, they had a hidden bullion supply that they could draw upon that no one else knew about. Now, this brings up Genoa, because Genoa, of course, is where Christopher Columbus hails from. Genoa is the other major rival to Venetian power in the northern Italian city-states. And lo and behold, what do we find out? Well, if you look at the capitularies, the the contract between Ferdinand and Isabella and Columbus, Isabella makes the statement to Columbus, and I, I put this in the book, that you know, Columbus is describing all this wonderful stuff that, you know, is out there that we can go get. And it's very clear that the context is here is not talking about Columbus wanting to take a voyage to the Spice Island follow me? <laughs> right. It's very, very right. clear, and Isabella remarks, it's almost, sir, as if you've been there already. <laughs> well, lo and behold, the the Turkish map of Antarctica that you referred to earlier in your question, the, the Piri Reis map from a Turkish admiral. Yeah. Well, Piri Reis, as a matter of fact, even states explicitly in the marginalia notes that he made on this map, and in his own writings, that Columbus had a secret map of the New World and had already made a voyage to the New World prior to his so-called voyage of discovery. So in other words, again, you have this not very well-known tradition that Columbus himself may have taken a trip there and went back to Spain and sold Ferdinand and Isabella on backing a much larger expedition uh, to stake out Spanish claims and of course Genoa is involved here the Genoese are the hidden financers of all this well if you're Genoa and you learn that Venice has been doing this for some time well you want to go there too and find out what's there and get your hands on it so the hidden players in this whole drama here are, are Genoa and Venice. <laughs>
0: so, mm. Pat, did you have a question? Did that something you had wanted to say about the ancient maps?
1: Yeah, uh, Doctor, are you familiar with Wayne Herschel?
2: The name is familiar to me, sir, but I can't place the context.
1: Okay, he's he has uh, a website called The Hidden Records, and all of his studies and research were started by a dying Freemason who talked about all the ancient star maps mm-hmm. of Orion and Pleiades
2: mm-hmm. and how
1: he claimed these three stars in that area were the origins of, of humans, is what he believed. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask your thoughts on, on Orion and Pleiades. And, you know, in, in Masonry and in a lot of other things in life, the significance of the number three, the, the three major and minor lights of Masonry, the three pillars, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is something that's continual in, in Masonry. And what they represent is something bigger than necessarily what they say. <clears throat> Excuse me, but also throughout life, there's a lot of other things. Jesus was 33 years old. You know, it just there's all the the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. It's it's a nonstop thing. And I was just curious as to what your thoughts were on on some of that.
2: Well, concerning uh, concerning the triadic structure of, of that you're getting at, um, I've actually done a lot of work on that in some of my books. I call it the topological metaphor of the medium, and it it's. Uh, Dealing with the reason why you have these Trinitarian structures, you know Christianity right. with with the Trinity. You've got a Trinity in Hinduism, you know Brahma, Vishnu, Krishna and all of that yes. You've got a Trinity in in the Mesoamerican uh, Texts and so on and so forth there, I think that this is coming out of a deep uh, A deep mathematical understanding of the nature of reality uh, and, and that's that's putting it as succinctly as I can put it. With respect to Orion and the Pleiades um, there are all sorts of legends of various peoples around the world that seem to indicate the Dogon tribe in Africa being a, a famous example that have this mythology that they actually originate from a star system in Sirius <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not surprising that it's there. Um, right. As to what it, as to how it all links together or ties together, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows because each of us researchers in this, this weird alternative realm is kind of out doing our own thing, and hmm. there's really no, been no one to come along and try and draw a synthesis together of all of it. Um, that, that's been the big problem. Uh, and, and more and more data you know, keeps being discovered and added to the, to the equation every day, it seems. So you know, eventually I think what's going to happen is that synthesis is going to have to be done if the standard uh, academic historiographies are going to be overturned. I think the, the case has been made that, that this alternative timeline, does exist, but no one has done a synthesis yet to to kind of tie all this data together, and that's been the problem.
1: Yeah, I just found it. I find it very interesting. While uh, a good friend of mine, a very very intelligent man, Michael Chavella, who was my broadcast partner for quite a while for about seven years, he's he's back in Australia now. He's the guy that pointed this out to me, and he's he's written several books on some very interesting subjects. But it, I found it intriguing that all these star maps of Orion and Pleiades were were basically all around the world in ancient civilizations near the, you know, they, they go back as far as, as, you know, as far back as people can carve into rocks, basically. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very interesting stuff. And just the, just the simple facts and things that, I mean, anybody has got to wonder why it is modern man can't figure out how they built the pyramids. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to say to yourself, wait a minute, there's there's something seriously missing here in our intelligence levels.
2: Yeah, well, you know, people need to sit down and actually read Sir Flinder's Petri, the the Pyramids and Monuments of Giza. He's he's the so-called founder of modern Egyptology. And he spends a great deal of time in that book talking about and you can kind of tell he doesn't want to talk about it, but, but he talks about some of the structures, particularly the sarcophagus in the Great Pyramid, appearing to him as, as if it had been drilled out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So oh. the, the mind boggles because you know how, how they might have been able to drill things with, with fan belts and copper diorite balls and slurry, <laughs> but to do so and get the kind of precision that they got would have been a different matter altogether. So yeah, you're right. Um, there's all sorts of things indicating that, that these structures, some of these structures are very, very old. Um, they're, they're too precise. Right. And you know the, the biggest, the, other the other biggest pro- the biggest problem I've had with the Great Pyramid, which I talked about in, in my pyramid books, is when they went to carbon date the mortar in the pyramid, they discovered that the mortar, the carbon dating of the mortar at the top of the pyramid. Was about a thousand years older than the mortar at the bottom of it. (laughs) So you know they built it from the top down. (laughs) Well,
0: that kind of leads to your, you know, your thoughts and your hypothesis that the Great Pyramid was some form of defensive or offensive weapon, and that was the that that changing of the the mortar was due to you know certain level of radioactivity at the base of the pyramid.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. it, it it's it's a conundrum that I don't think anybody has an answer to. You know, I've read all sorts of explanations about how they built the thing, from you know the standard Egyptological <clears throat> things to more avant-garde notions, and yet none of them uh, none of them seem to be able to capture it. No, <laughs> you know, much less much less do so in a way that's going to get that building optically aligned like it is. <laughs> so.
1: Right. And and when you talk about, you know, the the galactic wars and and all this that blows most people's minds and obviously it blows my mind, I, just to try to process, you know, because we were taught our entire lives where humans came from and, and so when we when we learn these ulterior uh, these these different possibilities, it, it's tough to grasp, it really is. And but then you go back and you see the carvings and drawings, the ancient stuff of, of battles going on in the sky. Mm-hmm. And these are obviously back in times when people didn't, well, at least from from our knowledge, certainly didn't have anything that could fly.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You get you get all sorts of very, very peculiar descriptions in these these war tales of, of the gods. Uh the Mahabharata in the Hindu tradition is, is full of descriptions of things that, that sound very much either like nuclear weapons or directed energy weapons of some sort. Uh, you've got the legends of Marduk or Zeus and their thunderbolts. Uh, you, you've got a very, very fascinating description of Marduk's weapons in the Enuma Elish. Uh, that, that are, if you look at them with kind of a modern physics eye, are, are quite eye-opening. So yeah, there's something going on back then. Clearly that if you take the texts as they stand and at their word are trying to describe a technology that they simply don't have adequate enough words for, but yet the descriptions are there and you can kind of reverse engineer certain things, if you will, from the texts themselves.
1: Yeah, and then we talk about the the civilizations, the ancient cities that have been dug up uh, in the Middle East, and and you may know the specific names and places, obviously, I don't recall offhand right now, but where they had discovered cities underground that had excavated the entire city and found hundreds of skeletons in the streets holding hands, dead, uh, killed, and then the high uh, radiation levels massive radiation levels yeah
2: you're talking you're talking about mohenjo daro in india yes that's it um, yes the the city there you're you're quite correct the skeletons there are people skeletons of people that you know look like they had been going about their everyday life and then some cataclysm hit them there is an in- extreme high amount of, of background radioactivity wow uh, some some Soviet scientists as I recall went there and did some studies there in the 1950s I think it was the 1950s and they concluded that some sort of nuclear weapon of, of on the scale of, of something like Hiroshima had been detonated and again that that would fit the descriptions that you have in some of the texts of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and some of the Hindu epics so you know the data the data is there if you if you want to bother to look for
0: it well that's that's the huge problem <laughs> doctor that's the huge problem with today people uh, tell me about it <laughs> yeah they have a very fast food way of approaching information um yes <laughs> yeah i mean and it's not to digress i guess but i mean i definitely wanted to try to synthesize as much of this as possible before we let you go going back to the venetians and how they were so much of the economic powerhouse at the time and you know some of their double dealings and they were pretty shady in their double dealings and talk about you know they were able to kind of maintain their power by working with both the catholic church and the protestant church at a certain point in time moving north to expand their power and then you wind up like you said going into and correct me if i'm wrong this leads into these multiple different um, families which wind up going into certain countries and they're all related from the russians to the Dutch to the english talk to me about that the the, the expansion of the venetian power if you will well, during the, their
2: t- the venetians established essentially an oligarchical state in the guise of a republic. Uh, and it's very interesting, Gospiro Cardinal Contarini. Where have uh, I heard that before? <laughs> a very, Yeah, he was a very famous uh, Renaissance cardinal. He was actually the cardinal that was not only corresponding with Martin Luther, but also at the same time setting up the Council of Trent. So, you know, he was definitely playing both sides against the middle. But he wrote an interesting uh, treatise about the Venetian Republic, which, incidentally, our founding fathers read. Um, Hmm. There's some school of thought out there that that had some influence on their thinking at, at the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention. But in any case, Venice, if you look carefully at what Venice did, began to do, The first thing that is a telltale clue was that the Venetian Republic began to liquidate its public debt right around the 15th and 16th centuries. And to me, that looks like a move that you would make if you want to get some liquidity and transfer headquarters, so to speak, because by that time, it's very clear that this little city in a swamp at the northern end of the Adriatic Sea right. is not going to be able to be a global player with the discovery of the new world. So what you see happening, I think, is the transference of capital, and the same with Genoa, because Genoa, as I said earlier, begins to back Spain. Venice moves north, and you find a very interesting progression of banking families, the Fugger's family in Germany, the... the um, Fonturn und Taxis family in Germany, that's still a family that's around. It has an Italian branch, Della Torre e De is the Italian name of the family. So in other words, this family, this powerful banking family, exists on both sides of the Alps. What you see happening is very interesting, because a major banking center Another major banking center begins to arise at about this time in a swamp. <laughs> and that's called Amsterdam folks. And from there, if you if you study the the history of the the so-called glorious revolution, when uh, Charles II dies, the English are again confronted with a problem of you know, how are we going to get a monarch? Well, they turn to... The Dutch. And they bring over William Stottholder, who becomes William III. Hmm. And what's the first thing William III does? Well, he sets up the Bank of England <laughs> and becomes a major shareholder. So you've got this transference of basically a Venetian way of, of doing things northward into Germany and then <clears throat> subsequently over to Holland and then, of course, across the channel to, to Great Britain. And it's very interesting to me, you know, you look at the costumery of of the British monarchy, you know, when they're out in, in all of their costumery for some state occasion. Well, it's very Venetian if you stop and look at it carefully. So I think it's very clear that you have this uh, move of these Genoese and, and Venetian banking houses to transfer their headquarters, their base of operations, so to speak, but they keep the same methods, the methods they have, the playbook hasn't changed very much in the last 500 years, and we definitely
0: yeah, we've definitely seen that
2: yeah, we've definitely seen that. You know, you guys need to update things here.
0: <laughs> well, if it ain't broke, don't break it. You know what I mean? They seem no, to have true. a they seem to have a certain method. Um, so moving forward, once again, like I guess I'm trying to cram pack a lot in here. But you you talked about a bit, and I'm not sure when exactly this took place. If this was more a couple hundred years later, um, the, the schism that was kind of going on between that old European guard in the new world Anglican American um aspect if you will um speak to that the the, the schism i am
2: not i'm i'm not getting enough information there to to understand what you're getting at
0: um I, from what i could understand from some of your videos there after i guess it was around maybe at the end of world war ii where that that where we kind of had our first conversation that ilk went kind of underground and even before that i thought you had spoken something about um there, there was kind of I don't know, somewhat of a a schism between the certain kind of powerhouses, if you will, in Europe, leading up to kind of uh, somewhat today. Um, If I'm if I'm off, I'm 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 off then. I apologize.
2: Well, I'm I'm not I'm not latching on to what you're getting at. I do think uh, to approach it from a slightly different angle. um, I do think that that there was a fundamental conflict that was set up, namely World War One, Largely by the British oligarchy, uh, using, primarily using King Edward VII, Bertie, uh, who <laughs> kind of was, was the spearhead for creating the system of alliances to encircle Germany. But England, by that point, knew that it, on its own, simply could not tackle Germany. It had to have some allies on the continent, but they, they also viewed Germany as the principal competitor that had to be taken out and taken out now. Uh, so there was a schism, in a certain sense, between the the British oligarchy, the British royal house, and their German counterparts, uh, and Austrian <laughs> counterparts. Uh, we know what the result of that was. But I think in contemporary times, the the schism manifests itself, at least in this country, with what I've been calling factional infighting. You've, you've basically got a mafia uh, type of situation where the capos sit around at the same table, they drink their their sherry or their brandy, smoke their cigars, kiss each other rings while they're shooting at each other out on the street. <laughs> um, you you have, a, I think, in this country, a, a factional warfare going on right now between various segments of the American deep state. And you find that same factional warfare going on right now in Europe. You've you've seen it with the Brexit vote in Great Britain. Yes, the recent Italian elections. Uh, let's remember that that the the Lega Nord in Italy, which is one of those Eurosceptic parties, is founded and has its strength precisely in Venezia, in the province that Venice is in. So, in other words, all of these old, old fissures are are surfacing again. You find the same thing going on in Germany and Hungary. So, there's some sort of deep factional infighting going on, and I do think that that infighting is... Predicated upon one very simple phenomenon. They realize they're getting very close to their global only goal Hmm. and now each faction wants to be the dominant faction that's going to run the show and The closer they get to the goal the more it falls apart because they all want to be that faction and they're all starting to fight each other so
0: Fascinating. yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's to me. It's very clear um well,
0: going back to what you said about how their playbook hasn't changed, do you see any name? Do you see that Venetian model still, you know, being exercised today in any fashion? Do you see, you know, any remnants of that in any specific? As you oh, talked yes, about absolutely. in your videos, bloodlines. Any specific bloodlines that, you know? Oh
2: yes, the, the, those those old. I, I even blogged about this recently. Those old Italian noble families that are connected to genoa uh florence venice those families fonturn and toxis and
0: right you know, right
2: you know these families are still around they're still very wealthy and they're still very very powerful uh you know forget about the rothschilds they're kind of johnny come latelys to the game you know the Italians and, and that's so funny
0: doctor that's... everyone throws that name out like they are the be all end all and i always say if you know their names like if they're so mainstream, then they're not—they're not, they're not the true players of you know—they're not the true architects uh, of things. If you know their names,
2: no, I think I think you have to look at some of these old families very very you know the Justiniani, another another very very old family in Italy that's still around. Are you familiar with uh, the
0: Pallavincini? They're like an Italian, um, uh, they're Muslims, but they're I don't that name. I saw some videos that they go back to kind of the black nobility. You familiar with that name, the Pallavincini's?
2: Uh, the name is vaguely familiar to me there's okay. there's all sorts of, there's yeah, all sorts sure, of sure. uh, both in italy and germany again those two countries in particular are are key because of course northern italy was part of the holy roman empire was part of the right. roman empire at the time so you have this these interlocked families and of course they another very famous family would be the de esta family or sometimes it's called estes you know that's a very common family name and that yeah Uh, yeah well that family that family connects directly to the house of orange in holland the welf estes uh that family has connections to queen victoria uh, so, you know, again... Links to the men, House of
0: Hanover and Bavaria, is that correct?
2: Oh, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, they're all kind of interconnected. It's so crazy. So, so you know, it's Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, it is. stop and think of it. Kaiser Wilhelm, you know, Queen Victoria's grandson, cousin to Tsar Nicholas, you know, <laughs> all, all of these very weird connections.
0: Well, and I suggest everyone to listen to our last interview because our last interview, I kind of did it out of order. We kind of pick up at, you know, beginning of World War II and the players involved... So, if you don't mind, you know, as it relates to what's going on today, I, I was when I contacted you before, and I really wanted you to get on. I hear about, you know, obviously Trump. Trump is now the, you know, the white hat, the lone gunslinger, going to save the planet. You know, I just I don't necessarily buy that per se. Is, no, is there is there any relation to him to the drumps, the D R U M P S, but more 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 modern and more um. More contemporary he was obviously a big real estate guy in new york and obviously new york was run and is probably still run by the mafia are those italian families in any way tied to any italian nobility that he might still have some kind of alliance to
2: well that i that i don't know I can tell you that my suspicion when Mr. Trump made his announcement was that, yes, he was, from the outset, he was a a deep state candidate, but from a very, very different faction than that which was backing Darth Hillary. Um,
0: (laughs) I love it. Yes, sir. But,
2: but, you know, my, my thinking in concluding that was that Mr. Trump has, you know, heavy investments in casinos. And I've been right. in the casino business at certain times in my life. I know many people that still are that were out in Vegas. And when Obamacare hit, the casino business in Vegas tanked, because what happened was the middle class lost their discretionary income. They weren't going to Vegas to go to the shows mm. and gamble. And this began to cut into their bottom line. So I suspect that that was one faction right off the bat that you could count in Trump's corner that they were just tremendously upset at what had been done. Uh, I think there's other I think there's other parts of the deep state that are definitely in his corner. So I don't you know I don't view Mr. Trump as being a stupid man i don't think he would have got into this game if he hadn't had some some very very powerful kind of behind the scenes backers
0: i agree and I, his allegiance or his family ties with uh jared kushner and, and that kind of uh right new york kind of shady real estate alliance patrick jump in here man anything we're gonna let him go here in a little bit any closing uh comments questions well, have, we have for the good I doctor
1: most of the time learning and listening but i know my- because I have a psychopathic four-year-old in, in the house so, <laughs> running and yelling. so that's that's most of why I've been quiet so so no no problems at all you're asking the appropriate question don't
2: become psychopaths until they're teenagers <laughs>
0: and then they then they turn their parents into psychopaths <laughs> well what do you see sir I mean um, before we let you slide what do you see going on I uh, in our future we have divide and conquer on on super steroids and you're an individual obviously who understands the long game i don't know if you want to take it to this level but i saw a documentary not long ago about genocide and how it just doesn't happen overnight it has to there's a very steady slow steady process of seeing your enemy no longer as a human it has to do with propaganda etc cetera, etc cetera. I see a lot of that going on in our society today. Marriages are breaking up. Families aren't speaking to each other. It's so viscerally polarized right now. And a lot of it has to do with these political footballs we're kicking around. When if we just step back and see the larger perspective of how it's by design. What do you see going on? I, I saw one of your interviews with Dark journalists whom I love so much, and you guys called it hope porn, and I love that because that's exactly what it is—to contrary, you know, to counteract the fear porn that's been going on for so long. We actually had this notion that there's going to be accountability; these guys are going to go to jail, Hillary, etc. What are your thoughts on all of that?
2: Well, actually, the term hope porn was my friend Catherine Austin Fitz's term, and I, okay. I just love it. So I've 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 borrowed it from from her, but um. I, To be frank, I hate to say I don't see a short or midterm prognosis that's good. Uh, I go back to a Princeton study that was done, I think, two or three years ago that concluded two very frightening things. Number one, that America is a de facto plutocracy and oligarchy yes parading as a republic and number 2 it's in a pre-revolutionary state and nothing convinces me of that more than this j'accuse culture that we're in mm-hmm. we you know all we're lacking is robespierre and the committee for public safety and a few guillotines in the place de la concorde <laughs> and uh, you know that that's that's it um,
0: J'accuse, ladies and gentlemen, en francais, meaning I accuse, and that's exactly I what accuse. we're seeing. Like the acu- right. accusations are all you need to get fired, forced to resign, etc. Due process doesn't even happen anymore.
2: Right, it doesn't. And, and to me, that's, that's frightening thing, number one. The bigger problem that I see is that there is a concerted effort, in my opinion, to destroy the three pillars of, of, Western, found, of Western civilization, and in, in particular, the Christian pillar. Uh, I, tell, I tell my website people that I think that there's three essential pillars to this civilization. Uh, from Judaism, we get the idea of covenant or contract. The idea of, of a, a man's word is their bond. Uh, and of course, that implies rule of law. You can't have functioning economies. You can't have functioning contracts where there is no rule of law. Ah, uh, the second pillar being the idea of incarnate logos, the incarnate reason, uh, the harmony of the universe, and so on and so forth. That's a very, very powerful doctrine that I think lies right at the core of this civilization. And that doctrine, in turn, once you've once you've comprehended its its breadth and depth, invites its own critique. So the third pillar I've always viewed as that early enlightenment. Uh, uh, sort of rational humanism that you see emerging in in the 17th century, and that's the third pillar. And and right now, what we're trying to have is a civilization built only on the third, and not the other two. <laughs> you know, it's it's like a one-legged stool, and that's that's not going to work very well for very long. And out of that Enlightenment philosophy, you know, taken to its extremes, this is why we're entering the the kind of Uh, pre-revolutionary culture that we're in. So my short to midterm prognosis culturally is not good. In the long term, uh, I think this civilization is resilient enough that if it collapses here in the West, it will transplant itself somewhere else. Um, There's already certain signs that it's beginning to do so in China, even in spite of the communist government there. Uh, Russia is... Totally misunderstood by the West. I've, I've been saying for many years that Russia is the first post-postmodern state. And if we don't, if we don't understand that, uh, we're, we're going to commit some very, very huge blunders and strategic errors, which we're already doing. Well yeah, over I here, so
0: I mean you're here, you're seeing it. It's 1970, you know, it's 1980 again, you know. Moscow is, you know, it's it's the USSR, the evil boogeyman once yeah. again, which is just <laughs> yeah. insane to me. I just I don't understand how it's able to well, I get you know, it. I, I get it, but it just is it's hard I, to understand. I
2: have I have had, you know, I I have a Russian Orthodox background and Oh, wow. I went online A few weeks ago, and I don't even remember what I was looking for, but I found this video on YouTube of an Orthodox liturgy being performed in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow. And I looked at it and I said, Christ the Savior Cathedral, what? Because if you know the history of that church, it was actually a church that was across the Moscow River from the Kremlin, a big, big, huge church that Stalin blew up. build some Soviet palace to modern man or some such nonsense. (laughs) And the the Russians rebuilt the whole thing. They got out the the blueprints and just absolutely rebuilt the whole thing uh, in its original state. And I was absolutely dumbfounded. I was floored. (laughs) And i discovered that the the project was actually begun in the final uh two years of the soviet union so wow know, whatever's going on over there it it ain't what we think it is well and that's the
0: that's the to honest truth man the the misinformation the disinformation project mockingbird whatever you want to call it i mean it is it yeah. is it is sewing divisions that are deep and you know we're gonna see it's we're not even halfway through it man that's why i think i think this is This is leading us and pushing us to something that we really don't want to see but you know i'm I'm always i always want to sad
2: the sad reality is i think we're already in a shooting war um this this is becoming more and more apparent with each of these these school massacres you know this is a pattern that keeps repeating itself and uh, when you've got patterns like this, it's not coincidental. It's it's very, very deliberate. So I think we're in a shooting war already for whatever other reasons that you might attribute these sad events to. That's at least one of them.
1: Yeah, and, and Dr. Jeffrey, you've heard me say this before. You know, when you think of the word, most people think of the word apocalypse as, you know, the they think of it in terms of Armageddon where actually it comes from the root word apocalypsis from the Greek word, which means uncovering. And so I, I look at what we're going through now, you know, with all these politicians and, and Hollywood people and everybody else, and thousands upon thousands of pedophiles being arrested, tons of uncoverings, a lot of stuff being exposed right now. Wikipedia exposing the corruption in government, the just brutal corruption. Uh, you know, I, I see this as the uncovering, the phase when everything gets exposed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We no. will see, and I again this adds to some of the hope horn man I swear I, I mean you know all <laughs> of us sit around waiting is Mueller working with Trump is Mueller after Trump we're going to see it man in the coming days man Dr. Farrell, I can't Dr. Farrell I, I thank you so much for your time I mean I will continue you I mean if you can throw out any of your social networking stuff, please ladies and gentlemen support his work support his research so the man can keep writing books where can we where can we track you down sir
2: uh Best way is is through my website uh, www.gizadeathstar.com. Um, if you want to contact me, just use the contact button that goes directly to my to my email.
0: Perfect, perfect. Pat, any closing statements for the good doctor?
1: No, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you much for your time, doctor.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me back on.
0: Doctor, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, go track him down. This guy is the absolute truth. I cannot thank you enough for your time, sir. Peace and so much love and continued success. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. There will be more. Thank you, Doctor.
2: Yep, thanks for having me back.
0: All right. Take care. Yep, bye-bye. Bye-bye.